MSW Media. What happens when Donald Trump asks his own administration to break the law? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Ari Lamstein, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, you know, this week we have, I think, a bit of a special episode uh, because we have somebody who's going to be joining us who was a high-ranking official in the Trump administration who's come out and talked about the times in which uh, his his department was asked to break the law. And, and I have to say, it seems like a regular occurrence now in the Trump administration from from week to week that there's something illegal that Trump is asking people to do or asking his own administration to do. You know, just yesterday, you know, of course, he he asked uh, voters to vote twice publicly, and, and which, of course, is illegal. I don't think you need to be a lawyer to know that you shouldn't be voting more than once. But, you know, on the same day, there is an executive order saying that, you know, funding is going to be restricted to, quote, anarchist cities like New York, also totally unlawful. And, you know, we've gotten to the point now where I don't even bother to explain to people why things are nonsense, because I think everyone's figured out by now that Trump is trying to do what he can to break the law or encourage others to do the same. And a lot of it, I think, is just to distract. Some of it is because of his own um, personality, which we've heard, I think Mary Trump helped us understand but I think, you know, we're getting to the point now where it's it's pretty much a daily or weekly occurrence from this man. Well, here's the thing, Renato, you know, the entire time he's been in office, you know, a lot of people had the sense that we want people like Miles to stand up and, and do the patriotic thing, which is help save democracy. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about what it's like to be on the inside of this madness, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I have to say, as soon as that ad debuted uh, a couple weeks ago where Miles Taylor uh, shared his experience of serving. You know, he was chief of staff uh, in the Department of Homeland Security, which is a pretty high-ranking position. And he, you know, and he was somebody, of course, was a, a, a longstanding Republican that served in the George W. Bush administration as well. You know, I, I, I admired him for coming out and saying, you know, this is— I, I left the administration because I was being asked to do illegal things. I'm speaking out about what I saw, what I heard. 
know, he spoke out not only about the illegality, but also about a kind of bizarre, uh, troubling behavior by Trump. And, and I have to say, all of us would like to think that if we were in the same position, we would do the the same thing as him. I certainly am convinced I would. You know, I think it's harder than people realize. I'm really hoping that we're able to get a sense of that today to help people understand. I think a lot of our listeners ask, well, how are the Republicans doing this way? Don't they have any conscience? Aren't, you know, this and that. And I, hopefully Miles can help us understand how it is that, you know, he's speaking out, but so many others are saying silent and even caring forward and being complicit in Trump's illegality. No, you're right. I mean, it is an oversimplification to say that people should uh, come forward as it's happening in real time. And I think we've talked about this before. I mean, I have an in-law that is in a very high position in the White House, has uh, had dealings with I mean, has actually, uh, I believe, is also under investigation. I don't I don't mean to laugh in a like mocking way, but it's it's uncomfortable at the holidays. Uh, as you can imagine. So, I, I mean, but he's, but to me, he's a true believer. And from his point of view, the way I understand it is like, if he is operating under the, the um, means justify the ends, which is, you know, the push for the Supreme Court appointments and things like that. Yeah, I think that for a lot of Republicans, you know, I think that that justifies everything. I've seen, I saw a prominent Republican recently come out and say that, you know, you should ignore Trump's words, uh, but his policies are amazing. And it's really something because, you know, we we even heard that, I think, from a campaign spokesperson, which is something I've never really heard a campaign say before, ignore the president's words, right, but reelect him. Uh, but I think that for a lot of Republicans, they, they like the tax cuts, they like the, the judges and, and other things that they're getting. And so... You know, they don't want that to stop. They don't want to enable um, progressives to 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 undo some of that or to counteract some of that. And as you point out, I think uh, the phrase is the ends justify the means. Right. In other words, um, you know, let you know, regardless of these other problems, uh, we're going to kind of focus on the good, the good stuff. I will say that. You know, one thing that if I had to say, what is the number one question that we get from listeners, either in our patron, our Facebook patron group from the from those folks or people on Twitter who are asking questions, you know, it is always how can they get away with this? Does the law matter? What can be done about this? And everyone who listens to this podcast, I think, is developing a sophisticated understanding or at least a more sophisticated understanding of how what the law is, how not everything is a crime that's against the law, how even crimes can be difficult to investigate and prosecute. And I think for someone, you know, Miles Taylor's story is really helpful because, you know, he was asked, for example, you know, he was he was there when, you know, Trump was saying, break the law, don't turn away people who were who are seeking asylum and I'll pardon you afterwards, which is totally reprehensible, totally contrary to uh, it's an abuse of power. It's really contrary to what the how our system should work. But is it a crime? You know, not not really. Um, you know, is is the fact that the law requires us to um, to let in people who have uh, 
you know, who uh, are seeking asylum and then evaluate their their case. Is that a criminal statute? You know, are there criminal penalties attached to that? No. Um, does that mean it's any less problematic that the president of the United States who sworn an oath to uphold the law is undermining the law and using his pardon power to do so? Of course not. It's, it's reprehensible. But the problem is, you know, it's very difficult if you have people who aren't like Miles who want to carry that out. It's very difficult uh, to do something about it. And And that, of course, is the maddening part of it. Uh, There's so many maddening parts, really. It's hard to focus. Yeah, it is. You know, we talked last last week because that was the two-year anniversary of the podcast of how things have changed and how the storylines have changed. And, you know, when we first started doing this, Patty, there was very much like, okay, this happened this week, right? You know, there was bombs that were sent here or there was a a murder or, or, you know, uh, whatever. You know, something happened that week and we were really focusing on that. And it really seems during the age of the coronavirus and Trump's desperation uh, due to bad poll numbers at a fever pitch, uh, you know, it's just a, a constant onslaught of nonsense where Trump is trying to convince people that one plus one equals three, where our country is sort of suffering due to his incompetence and mismanagement. And it all sort of runs together. There's an illegality every day or certainly every week. Um, and it is kind of a, a fever pitch that I, I never – even last year, if you told me it could get worse, I wouldn't believe you. It is It has definitely gotten worse. Yeah. Well, November 3rd can't come quickly enough. No kidding. Or January 20th, uh, 2021. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> let's get to November 1st, my friend. <laughs> No doubt. Well, now let's bring in Miles Taylor. If you've been paying a lot of attention to uh, national news or politics, you've probably seen or heard Miles Taylor. He made a very uh, widely viewed and discussed ad for an organization called Republican Voters Against Trump, in which he denounced Trump and endorsed Joe Biden in the presidential election. Uh, He is a former political appointee during the George W. Bush administration. But the reason he spoke out uh, so much recently is because from 2017 to 2019, he worked at the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration, serving as the chief of staff for that department, for the secretary of Homeland Security. And he said he has said, amongst other things, that he's personally witnessed uh, Trump offer pardons uh, for people uh, in the department who are taking illegal activities. So now let's bring in Miles Taylor. Welcome to the podcast, Miles. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Miles, I want to talk to you, start by talking to you a little bit about, you know, who you are. Yeah, I, th- I know a lot of our listeners know you. They've seen the ad that you were, uh, at least one of the ads you're featured in. They've, they've, I'm sure many of them have seen you on cable news. But I, I think it would be helpful for people to understand, you know, who you are and, you know, why you were in the position you were and, and how difficult that that, you know, probably a, a position you were put in. So you you had you've been serving you were, uh, I think, a lifelong Republican who has served um, during, for example, the George W. Bush administration. You worked in 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 various positions during at that time. Is that right? Yeah, so I, I started my career working on Capitol Hill in the Republican majority. Uh, Dennis Hassert was Speaker of the House at the time, and 
Dick Army was, uh, you know, majority leader. And, you know, we had, uh, you know, I worked my way up through that route and, um, you know, into the Bush administration and then back to Capitol Hill. And then certainly when uh, President Trump won in 2016, I think a lot of us were looking forward to uh, a Republican administration and putting in place conservative policies. Um, You know, none of us were, um, you know, uh, under any illusion that Donald Trump was something different than what he uh, was. I mean, I think it was evident that, that there were clear flaws in his character, but I think there was a hope among many of us that he was going to uh, still be able to advance the conservative movement once at office and that perhaps the office would change him uh, a bit. Um, but a lot of our hopes were dashed through firsthand experience with the president, uh, myself included. But, you know, for your listeners, it's not really so much who is Miles Taylor. I mean, I'm happy for them to get to know me, but really what I'm explaining about the president is a sentiment that is so widely shared among his current and former advisors that really my name, my background, I hope eventually becomes irrelevant to them because, again, this is something that was almost universally seen. In fact, I would say there was a minority of folks in the administration who actually didn't feel this way. Um, or at least didn't express that they felt this way. But for the rest of us, we were pretty clear-eyed about who Donald Trump was and also the pitfalls of his presidency. Um, And and over time, it became evident that um, we wouldn't be able to pave over some of those potholes and um, and, and that it was better for some of us to leave. You know, Miles, you make a great point. I mean, and I don't mean to make this about you individually, but I think that – you help illustrate something, help us understand something about the Trump administration. And here's what I mean. A lot of my listeners ask me all the time, you know, how is it that Republicans are able to stand silently? How is it that people are able to carry forward his policies and so forth? And I think part of it, and and I'd be curious if you if you disagree with me, let me know. But I think part of it is people don't understand it's very difficult to get a job, a senior level job in an administration. It's a position of great responsibility, and it, to blow to blow all of that up, um, and to say I am going to stand up against something that is either um, lawless or very problematic or very alarming or undemocratic, you know, it has significant personal consequences for someone. And so that takes a measure of courage to do what you've done. And you may not view it that way. I do view it that way. It's part of the reason why I wanted to speak with you. And because I think that people should understand that it's not as easy as it might seem when you're when you're looking from afar. Yeah. So I'd say this. I mean, before jumping into that question, there's another thing I would want your listeners to know, and that is most of us who came into the Trump administration didn't know Donald Trump personally. You know, we didn't come in to serve the man. I mean, there were, there was certainly a a core cohort around him of people that have been around him for much of his career, a lot of fixers and insiders, including family members that came with. But the vast majority of people who came into the administration weren't coming in as some sort of cult of personality to support uh, Donald Trump, the man. They were coming in to, the, to serve the country. In my case, um, you know, the motivating factor was national security. That's what I've worked on my whole career. I haven't worked in Republican politics per se, right? I haven't spent most of my time on campaigns and in the muckety-muck of the Republican political world. I've been on the policy side, the how do we take Republican ideals and 
and move them in the direction of making the country safer. So that's why I came into the administration was with John Kelly when he was Homeland Security Secretary and then stayed on at the department uh, to become chief of staff. And DHS is a big 250,000 person, you know, the largest law enforcement agency in America. Um, my interest was to stay in that job and to make the country safer against criminals, terrorists, cyber attacks, foreign nation states meddling in our democracy. I mean, those are the things that have animated me my whole career. Now, in the course of that, I had very regular exposure to the president, his White House, and the rest of the administration. Um, and, and some of the, the dangers became very clear to me uh, during that period. That's why I ultimately cl concluded I, I really genuinely think the country is less safe because of this presidency than more safe, and in a million ways, and we can talk about those. As far as people speaking out, you know, it isn't the easiest thing for folks, and I try not to sugarcoat it. There's a lot of people still in the administration and who have left who've since come to me in the past few weeks and said, I want to come out too. I want to say the truth, but I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my personal safety, and those are all real things, but the message I would send to them is the potential costs you would face are drastically outweighed by the benefits um, in terms of regaining your conscience and and really feeling like you get to be yourself again and and tell the truth. So, um, but you know it's a challenge for folks. And and I'll say this: um, Donald Trump's core orbit is um, has a number of people who are very vindictive. And you know already in my experience, I've had people digging into my personal life, making phone calls to find out about past relationships things that have nothing to do whatsoever with politics or national security or the debate we're having. But this is this is what's become of Donald Trump's Washington. It's become all about the politics of personal destruction. Now, I don't need people to feel bad for me or worry about me. I got thick skin. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it and I can take it. But they should look at that and worry about what that says about what's happened in our nation's capital, that the issues in the American people aren't what matters anymore. The fighting is all that matters to this president and the people around him. Yeah, thank you. I, I you know, We will get into the specifics and what you saw and heard and, and you know, why the issues there are with Trump. But I do think what you said is important, Miles, because, you know, you mentioned earlier that you know the vast majority of the people in the administration share a lot of those concerns. And yet, we don't see there isn't a, a person like you coming forward every day or every week, and um, it's helpful for people to understand why. I will say I'm I'm not a Republican, and yet you know I've had I have people asking me all the time why am I wasting so much time, you know, talking about you know issues related to you know you know illegal activities or issues re related to the Trump administration because, you know, it'll, it'll upset, you know, hurt my ability to get clients as a lawyer or things like that. I, I think people don't understand that, um, you know, we're all human beings and have there's all sorts of different interests at play. And I I appreciate you sharing sort of some of what you've had to go through, uh, because I do think that that's important for people to understand. Well, and, and, and I would also um, I'd also point folks to the direction of some of the people who left the president's cabinet. I mean, some some folks have tried to hold their tongues because they want to put all of this in the rearview mirror and they want to move on. And others have, uh, you know, spoken out. But look, we've got the president's former national security advisor, the president's former chief of staff, um, former cabinet secretaries that have left this administration, who either through interviews or 
you know, audio that's leaked or books that they've written have made clear that they think the president is generally unfit for office. I think that's uh, stunning. And it's something that has no historical parallel that I can think of. An American president who's had so many people who serve around him come out and say, you know what, this guy's not equipped for the job. Um, you know, cynics will say, well, why did it take you so long to come out? Well, the honest answer is this. A lot of us were really worried about who would backfill us in our positions. We were worried about leaving those jobs and, and that someone with no experience in national security, in my case, might step into my shoes and just say yes to whatever the president wanted. Um, the problem with that is that the president often wants to do things he is not allowed to do under the law. And so a lot of us stayed much longer than we would have liked to. I've said this before, but I think I should have left at least a year sooner than I did, but that fear is what really kept us, um, many of us in those positions. So, um, you know, I, I would urge people not to be too quick to judge some of those others that haven't come out yet, because there are still people in the administration that we want to stay in the administration. I know I even feel the impulse sometimes to say, God, everyone just needs to resign in mass and call all of this out. But um, that wouldn't be a net positive for us, that would be terrible because there are good people still in this administration serving in senior positions who, if they left, would be backfilled by people who quite literally wouldn't be qualified to do the jobs. And we're talking about jobs like protecting the American people against violence and attacks and um, and, and shaping the direction of our government and our country. So um, I think we still want good civil servants in there holding their tongues while we're also having people come out and say what was really happening. Yeah, we had a member of Congress uh, on the podcast tell us that, you know, many of his colleagues, it, it felt that if they spoke out more vehemently against Trump, Republican colleagues, if they if they spoke more more vehemently, vehemently against Trump, they might lose in a primary and then be replaced by somebody who would just rubber stamp his policies. And that was a motivating force for them. I do think it's complicated. You, you mentioned, I think I saw you publicly state uh, earlier this week that you know some of the people who have replaced um, that Trump has replaced not just you but others in the in the administration with have, are sycophants. In other words, he sent. I think you said something to the effect of that he senses when people are resisting or trying to push back against his demands, and he you know gets rid of those people and replaces them with people who are more compliant. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely the truth. Um, you know, the way I characterize it to people is this, the so-called axis of adults that surrounded Donald Trump has now been replaced by the era of enablers. And um, it, it's sort of an 80-20 uh, flip is I'd say about 80% of the people that came in to this administration at the beginning were genuinely really good people who were experts in their fields and respectable. I mean, Donald Trump had a pretty killer cabinet when he came in. I mean, you can hate the president, but I would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone in that debate and say he came in with a very qualified cabinet. Um, but then that equation, that 80-20, uh, has flipped. And now I'd say only about 20% of the senior ranks of the administration are really people that should be in the jobs that they're in right now, people that we can depend on. And you know, about 80% now you've got are folks that are probably underqualified and all too willing to do anything the president wants and much less willing to speak truth to power. And that should be, that should concern people regardless of what their political affiliation is. Well, you know, one thing I do want to focus on, you know, you mentioned uh, a, f a few minutes ago about how sometimes Trump wants to do things that the law does not permit him to do. 
And that, I'd say, has been a, a something that I've been focused on explaining to people because I think a lot of the public assumes that when you break the law, you go to jail, you go to prison. I, I guess that's how it works on uh, TV shows. Uh, but the reality is, of course, not all laws are you know have a criminal penalty attached with them. Uh, some laws have gotten a lot of questions from our patients recently about the Hatch Act. Some you know are, are have more are more civil uh, in terms of the penalties. Um, some some you know some laws don't really have a penalty associated with breaking them. Um, although courts you know can potentially you know enjoin or force somebody to comply with the law. Can you give us a sense when when you've talked about Trump wanting to do things that are that that countervene the law? Can you give us a sense of what what you saw in your personal experience and get in a sense of the complexity of of that uh, of of uh, his his uh, you know lawless behavior? Yeah, a lot of times it was this: um, Congress would pass something that was on the books, and the president wanted to do something different. So uh, often this happened with foreign aid. So we would have the president semi-regularly, you know, say to us, he wanted to cut off aid to X, Y, or Z country. And we would say, Mr. President, when Congress appropriates money and says the government has to spend it on a certain thing, we have to spend it on a certain thing. The president doesn't just get to rewrite the law. Um, Sometimes those requests would have been extremely consequential if followed through on. He, he wanted to be able to shut off all money to key countries in Central America because uh, he said they weren't being helpful enough to him on his immigration policies. Well, the perverse thing about that is Congress uh, gives the State Department money to spend in Central America largely for the purpose of immigration and border security. So to help pay for investigators and border officials and, uh, you know, folks to go after human smugglers and child traffickers. Um, the money goes towards good things that ultimately benefit us. And, uh, you know, we had repeated requests from the president to cut off those funds. And at one point, I think after we left that, you know, they tried to pause those funds, but uh, Congress intervened and said, look, some of this is not discretionary. You don't have a choice. In other words, um, this is, this is the law of the land. Uh, so it didn't surprise me when, Late last year, we had, or this time last year, rather, we had an intelligence community whistleblower come forth and say that the president had been trying to withhold money to Ukraine uh, and to use it for his own sort of personal benefit. And the reason that didn't surprise me is I've seen the president on multiple occasions try to withhold U.S. government money to gain some sort of leverage, whether it's over a foreign leader or a foreign country or something that might appear to personally benefit him. Uh, this isn't how government works. This isn't how government's supposed to run. Our taxpayer dollars are not poker chips on a table for the president to play with. Um, there's a very rigorous democratic process around how taxpayer dollars get spent and used. And to have the president unilaterally rewrite that is, is truly uh, antithetical to our system of government. So, you know, those, those would be the instances that were galling, but there were plenty of others uh, you know, and, and it often was at the border. Um, you know, look, I came into government not uh, as an immigration expert. That's not where I started my career. I came into government because of 9-11. I have spent fo- focused mostly, mostly on core national security issues. But um, a piece of that is border security, less so immigration. But, um, you know, over the years, I've, I've become more adept on the issue. And um, I know enough to know when something's not legal on the immigration front. And we would regularly get requests from the president to do things 
that simply wouldn't have been legal to just shut off the entry of certain individuals into the country that he didn't want to come in. Um, and we'd have to say, Mr. President, we just we cannot do that under the law. But um, it would be one thing if you told a president something like this once or, or maybe twice. OK, Donald Trump's a, a lifelong businessman. He hasn't served in these positions before. So it's actually incumbent upon senior officials to teach him about his job, to help him uh, and enable him. But when it's the 15th or 16th time that the president makes a demand like that, then you realize, well, this isn't because um, he doesn't know better. He knows better. He just wants to do something uh, that's wrong anyway. And, and that's really where the concern grew, especially in year two of the Trump administration. So that's interesting. So in the beginning, uh, you perhaps would give him the benefit of the doubt because you're you're thinking, OK, this man doesn't know that Congress has the power of the purse. And under our system of government, they're the ones who have to appropriate, you know, they're the ones who appropriate funds. So let's explain all of this to him. And, you know, maybe he'll understand uh, but after he keeps making the same request afterwards, you you your opinion of him potentially changes. Yeah, I mean we <laughs> there's there's a lot of I mean I could go on for days with examples. You know there's uh, there was another instance I remember where um, it's it's a little bit of a sensitive subject, so I'll I'll dodge the sensitive uh, issues. But there was a, a security concern that we had. We were worried about a certain threat to the United States, and we briefed the president on it. Uh, he was aware of the threat. He knew it was a, a, a danger. And there were there was sort of real time information that was giving us concern that Americans could be in danger. And we said, Mr. President, there's something that we need to do. We need a certain authority from Congress in order to make sure that we catch these bad guys more effectively and stop their plots. And um, the president said, no, no, don't worry about it. Just do what you need to do anyway. And we said, you know, we patiently tried to explain it again. We said, no, no, I mean, here's the issue. If if we want to be able to go after these bad guys and stop their plots, we need to work with Congress uh, on, on certain laws that have to do with privacy and create exceptions that, are, that can be reviewable by courts, uh, but to be able to go after these guys. And, uh, and we think there's bipartisan consensus, but it would be against the law for us to do this. He said, I don't care. Just do it anyway. Just do it anyway. Do what you have to do. You've got my permission to just go. Um, of course we didn't, right? But that the commander in chief knew that something was going to be against the law to do it and urged us to do it anyway was just one more example and a litany of examples for us to say he's he's not equipped to do this job. And that happened in I think that was either the end of year two or year three that we had that example. Um, now we ended up working with Congress on this specific issue, and uh, it turned out for the better, but um, not. Not because of the president, in fact, despite him. Yeah, I mean, what what concerns me is instances where that may have happened in another department, and no one uh, pushed back. I mean, you could imagine if somebody essentially complies with that, you know, that's that's where we get these these headlines that we find out later. Oh, you know, this happened six months ago, and it appears to have been against the law. Well, you're absolutely right, and in that specific circumstance, if there had been different people in my job and the secretary's job, Secretary Kirsten Nielsen at the time, uh, I'm not sure what the outcome would have been. And not to say that we're, you know, some unsung heroes, but we knew enough about our jobs and the law and government and, you know, not wanting to go to prison that we said, no, we have to do this the right way. Um, but there are other folks in Donald Trump's orbit who, when faced with the same pressure, would have said, yes, sir, we'll just uh, we'll just do it. 
And that's that should give people pause. Well, I know uh, our listeners had a lot of questions about you know, it's, I think relating to Trump's orders to break the law. Patty, do you have any, uh, any of those questions? Well, I think Miles did a great job there of giving us an example because listeners did want to know how Trump reacted. And it seems as though you're saying that he would say, just do it anyway. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. And Patty, I'll add on to that and just say, you know, because it's helpful for folks to understand that the total tonnage of these requests, right, would, um, would smash a small house. I mean, there's, there's so many of them that, you know, like uh, the border itself was an example. Was the president repeatedly told us to seal the border, to seal the entire U.S. border. Um, that's not actually a thing um, that we can do. You can close all the ports of entry to the U.S. border, right? All the, or all the crossings where people drive across. But, um, you know, you can't forbid anyone and everyone from coming across at any point uh, unless you know, the president really invoked certain wartime authorities. Even then, Americans, for instance, have a right to come back into their country, people with visas to come into this country. Um, but he would do this all the time. He'd get so frustrated. He'd see a caravan. He'd say, just seal it, seal the entire thing that a single person gets across. And you're like, well, that's not, that's not actually a thing we can do. That's not real. But he wasn't interested in hearing about that. I mean, he would stop you and stop you and interrupt you. I even think to this day, the president still doesn't understand what authorities he has and doesn't have when it comes to things like border security uh, or counterterrorism, um, he, he just hasn't taken the time or, or demonstrated the intellectual curiosity to know how to do his job and what its limitations are. And, and uh, folks also want to know, uh, you know, what, aside from firsthand experiences, what kind of evidence or records do we have of these requests? Are there recordings? Are there notes to your knowledge? Um, I would say this. I mean, gosh, virtually everyone who's served at a level where they've had exposure to the president has been on the receiving end of some kind of request like this. I mean, it's firsthand testimonials uh, of people who were there in the room. I mean, I don't know how you get much better than that. I think it's a little odd and inappropriate for people to be, uh, you know, taking recorders into conversations with the president <laughs> of the United States. I mean, a number of the conversations that I was in with the president happened in the White House Situation Room. OK, that's a secure classified facility. You can't bring electronics. Uh, into those rooms. But uh, of course, yeah, people took notes. I mean, John Bolton is a great example. Um, people can roll their eyes at John Bolton um, and disagree with him or say he's a warmonger or whatever criticism they might try to levy against the man. But I'll tell you one thing John Bolton is not. He's not a liar. And uh, once upon a time, I got to work with him at a think tank in Washington, D.C., and then I got to serve uh, in the Trump administration with him when he was national security advisor. And what John Bolton says he saw in his book is what John Bolton saw. And he took copious notes. I remember the yellow legal pad that followed him around everywhere. So um, I actually would say to listeners, there's more documented evidence of wrongdoing in this administration than any past administration. I, I, I'm trying to avoid hyperbole, but it's difficult when it comes to Donald Trump, because I think far and away, this makes Richard Nixon look like uh, a low-level, you know, street criminal um, because of this, the magnitude of, you know, corruption allegations that have been levied against this president, many of which are justified. And again, I go back to Bolton in his book. He meticulously documents uh, some of these inappropriate requests, namely one with China that the president of the United States pressed a foreign adversary 
to intervene on agriculture-related issues because it would benefit him in the election. Um, that's stunning. That would be just that one instance alone would have led us to impeach Barack Obama when I was working in the Congress during the Obama presidency, just that one instance alone. But we've had dozens and dozens of instances uh, that rise to that level with Donald Trump. Well, in the in that vein, then, you know, aside from going to the press with firsthand experiences, who do you make, you know, these claims? Who do you report these illegal requests to and what kind of oversight is there? Well, and, and that's really what it comes down to. It depends on it depends on what the president has demanded someone do. And I would hope people follow all appropriate process. It's not like um, all laws are not exactly the same. So earlier when we were talking about appropriations and spending congressional dollars, you know, when the president says, no, do it anyway, uh, and then we don't, there's not, a, there's not really someone to go to at that point and say, well, the president wanted me to do a bad thing, but I didn't do it, and the bad thing didn't happen. Um, there's not a police agency to report him to if he wants to misspend congressional dollars. It really becomes a fight between the branches of government. Now, the irony behind that is if a mid-level government servant um, misdirected U.S. government money to something it wasn't supposed to be spent on, they could be prosecuted, right? They could be charged. Um, but the president of the United States is in a very different position politically, and, and that makes it a challenge. That said, um, the president is not above the law. And we saw with the president's impeachment a great example of an anonymous whistleblower in the intelligence community who went through the right process, who first went to the inspector general. The inspector general reviewed it. Um, and then I think it was determined that this was uh, something that rose to the level for the Congress to consider. The inspector general's powers to hold the president accountable are limited. He reports to the president. Um, you know, So that's, that's the challenge here. And I think a lot of these instances are things where the president uh, can't necessarily be prosecuted because nothing ended up happening because people dissuaded him or refused to implement an unlawful order. Uh, and so the next best thing is to expose the character of the person who would make such requests. Um, you know, in my case, I, I've talked publicly about an instance down at the southern border where the president said, I want you guys to stop accepting asylees, right? People who are coming to seek refuge in the United States, which we're not allowed to do under the law. We said, no, that'd be illegal, Mr. President. We can't. And he offered to one of our Homeland Security officials, he said, well, just do it. And if you get in trouble, I'll pardon you. That moment, the, the offer of a potential presidential pardon for an illegal act, I actually thought in that moment, this has got to be textbook uh, illegal. Now, I can't get into too much detail on, on the considerations that happened after that, because it's part of that's privileged and confidential, the legal process went through. But we consulted with the appropriate folks, and it was determined you know, that that didn't necessarily cross the line of illegality, but certainly was at a bare minimum uh, worrisome from a corruption standpoint. Uh, fortunately, there were good people who got that information out there, um, and, and that sort of made it uh, into the public domain, and members of Congress were made aware but like everything in this administration, the president swept over it uh, in a couple of tweets. In fact, I think he tweeted out as soon as that story hit, this is completely untrue. It's, it's made up. It's the mainstream media. Pay no attention. Well, I'm here to tell you that tweet was an actual lie, a bold-faced lie. It happened. I was there. I'm a flesh-and-blood human being who was witness to this. Um, and, and so like, I think that's what's concerning is um, – 
ultimately, the real people to hold the president accountable are the American people and our elected representatives. And if they don't, he can get away with this stuff. And that's why November 3rd is so important. That's why I'm speaking out now and not six months ago or last summer after I left the administration, because now is when we need to be reviewing his resume and deciding, uh, is this man capable of doing his job? Does he have a proclivity towards illegal activity or corrupt or inappropriate or un-American policies? Um, in my opinion, having served for him, uh, he does, unfortunately, and and the American people should hold him to account for it. You know, one thing I will say before I get mobbed with questions from listeners, um, you know, it is possible to break the law by attempting to do something, even if it doesn't uh, even if it doesn't come to be. But it's very difficult to prove uh, whether somebody actually was taking a substantial step towards committing a crime, for example, um, if they float an idea uh, and it gets shot down or something like that. So typically that's the sort of thing that wouldn't be prosecuted. This is just my own judgment. I don't know any secret information. Uh, I'll just say that as a lawyer and former prosecutor. But, you know, what I what I will say, too, you know, is I think you've I've heard you talk you know, you, just a moment ago about the legal process. You know, it's important, I think, for people to understand that. You know, if for a wide category of behavior by the president, the appropriate uh, remedy is impeachment. And I think we've seen that play out. But, you know, often uh, for presidential wrongdoing, that is, for better or for worse, the system that the founders created. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with that. And look, these were actual conversations that we had inside the administration. I mean, you had senior members of the president's cabinet and uh, officials at the White House that would say, what do we do about some of the requests that he's made? And, and, and again, at that time in year one and year two, we're not talking about Bambis in the woods. We're talking about people who have serious experience in government and have served in some of the most powerful positions in our country, having these conversations and with really, really good lawyers who aren't you know, people who were in Trump's pocket or his friends from mm -hmm. beforehand. So you know, serious discussions were had when these things would come up, but it was often difficult because um, the president does a good job at at giving himself an out and making sure that people can't take him too literally. Um, so in the instance of the pardon, uh, you know, White House communications aides, you know, later wrote it off and they said he was joking. Right. And that was their answer. He was joking. Um, and then, so how do you get around that? Because only the president would know in his head if he was joking. I can tell you he wasn't joking. Um, but, but that's the type of thing he'd do. He'd be like, yeah, I said that, but uh, I was just kidding around. I mean, we wouldn't actually do that. I know I can't do that. And he's adept at that with senior officials at knowing at times where the real line of illegality is, the line that would put him in an orange jumpsuit in a prison, and walking just short of that and kind of doing, hey, hint, wink, nod, it would be really good if you did this. I know I can't tell you to do this, but you really should. Um, and that was very, very well documented, I thought, in the Mueller report. And there may be some folks who write off Robert Mueller and say it was a witch hunt, believe the president. I was not involved in any way, shape, or form in that investigation. But the things that I read in the report rang true to me in that I thought, well, yeah, this is what it's like to go into the room with the president or the, be on the receiving end of a phone call with him. There were many documented incidences in the Mueller report where he strongly urged or suggested to Justice Department officials that they obstruct 
the investigation, but without ever having his fingerprints on a direct order on paper, because I think Donald Trump knew, because a lot of people had told him, you will lose your presidency and you'll potentially end up in jail if you do this, right? That had been told to him by people he has since purged from his White House. Um, but, you know, so that's what he does. He tries to leave the fingerprints off and still urge people to do things that are inappropriate. Again, reminder, we're talking about the president of the United States here, the leader of the free world. It's still not lost on me in any interview or conversation, the gravity of these allegations. I don't want to be saying that our president of the United States uh, is prone to corruption, but it is quite literally the position that we're in today. And it's very difficult to cut through the BS because there's so much noise out there, a lot of it created by the president, but also on the other side of the political spectrum. People have been so baited by Donald Trump and they've gotten so angry at him uh, that they've lost their ability uh, to see it like it is. And, and to, as I always say, you know, to call the balls and strikes, it's gotten a lot harder for people to maintain their objectivity. Um, and, and I think that's why Donald Trump has, you know, uh, so many things have, uh, to use another sports metaphor, so many things have slipped past the goalie or gone unnoticed, or he's, you know, just, uh, distracted from them is because there's just so much noise out there. Yeah, before we move on to another topic, I do want to ask you, because you obviously have a lot of experience in, in the Hill as well you, as a congressional staffer. What do you make of impeachment and how that played out, uh, given that that would ultimately be the remedy under the Constitution for you know ser serious abuses of power by the president? Yeah, uh, look, at, at the outset, um, despite my misgivings about the president, I wasn't and have never been and never will be someone who agitates for the impeachment of the president of the United States. And before uh, before the Mueller investigation even really commenced in earnest, there were people saying we need to impeach the president. I think that that's, that's very reckless talk. No American, as much as they dislike the president, should want the commander in chief to be impeached, because that means they want the commander in chief to have committed high crimes and misdemeanors. We shouldn't, we shouldn't desire that. We shouldn't desire to have a criminal uh, in the Oval Office. So I tried to withhold judgment throughout that process and say, you know, look, let's really just see where the facts go. Robert Mueller is a former FBI director, career federal prosecutor, really, really well-respected uh, person. My thought was, let's just see where this ends up. And then based on that information, try to objectively determine whether or not the president broke the law, either to the letter or to the spirit of high crimes and misdemeanors that the founders laid out in the Constitution. Um, when the report dropped, I can tell you there were people in the administration, myself included, who looked at it and thought, this is pretty damning. Um, I think Robert Mueller appropriately decided that he couldn't reach a conclusion because the information, the evidence that he had found rose to a level that the political branches themselves would have to resolve it. I mean, I think he was, he stayed very true to the constitution and that he said, I can't make a determination about whether the president obstructed justice. That here's all the evidence. That's now the job of the Congress. And for better or for worse, as you know, that's, that's the way our system was designed in terms of the outcome. Um, I, I do think it was wrongly decided. But uh, it's a very political process. You know, Mitt Romney was the only Republican to have the courage uh, to say it like it was and, and to vote. Uh, I think and that was a very sobering decision for him, but to vote for the removal of the president. Um, I can tell you 
from firsthand experience because I stay in touch with a lot of these Republican senators and congressmen because I used to work with them every day, that there are a number of them who believe the president was guilty. And they did what they did anyway. I think that's, that's immensely disappointing to me. But it just shows you how much Donald Trump has been able to instill fear throughout the Republican Party and convince members of Congress he'll destroy their careers and reputations and family lives and whatever else if they go against him. I mean, there's actual palpable fear uh, among these members when they speak candidly about the president. They'll speak in hushed tones behind closed doors and they'll turn their iPhones off and their Apple watches off just in case they're bugged. I mean, that's what they'll do to have conversations about him. But I can tell you, I go over to their houses and have glasses of wine. I catch up with these people still. And a whole hell of a lot of them uh, think the president's totally unfit for his job. And these are name brands that you see on TV and you hear from. Uh, and I've stayed in touch with some of those folks and said, I just really think you need to be honest with the American people. And everyone's got their different reasons. And I'll keep pressuring those folks to speak up. But, um, you know, he's he's definitely been the cause of uh, a pandemic almost as bad as the coronavirus pandemic. And I'd say that's the spinelessness uh, pandemic in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, Donald Trump has spread that thing like wildfire. And a lot of these uh, Republican members of Congress have lost their spines and their, their moral compass here. Um, they'll tell you the truth behind the scenes, but they have a hard time saying it now. But just wait. I mean, if the president loses reelection, you're going to have a, an avalanche of Republicans say, ah, he, you know, I knew all along and I did my best to push back against him. But I think that's not enough. You know, it's interesting. I've always I've definitely wondered how the Republican Party is going to change and emerge uh, coming out of the Trump presidency. And I think this issue you raise of unfitness for office is an important one. You know, there's there other than we obviously we have a, an amendment to the Constitution that deals with the removal of a president. Um, you know, if he's not able to perform his function, uh, but it's 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 very, very, very difficult uh, to um, to invoke that. That's an extraordinarily cha uh, challenging process. And, you know, separate and apart from that, this issue of unfitness is one that it seems fairly obvious to me uh, from observing uh, Trump publicly that he appears to be unfit for office. And certainly given what we've just, you know heard and read, not only in the Mueller report and during the impeachment investigation, but from people like yourself, you know, you, you say that people believe he's unfit for office. Can, can you give us a sense of w what that means to the people who have seen and heard Trump firsthand in his administration? Well, look, I mean, I'll put it very, very simply. Um, I wouldn't put him in charge of uh, a classroom, let alone a country. I mean, genuinely, the guy during meetings can't pay attention. I mean, he can't focus and he fidgets and he blurts things out and he forgets things all the time and he gets confused and, um, you know, constantly is bringing up inappropriate subjects, you know, during sobering and weighty conversations. I mean, he literally, like, he can't do the job. He like, you, you could be in meetings with him and walk out and think that guy was barely functioning the way we needed him to. Um, not that he was comatose, but that he, he couldn't, consider information thoughtfully, carefully, and make informed decisions. Um, he was erratic. And that's what I mean fundamentally about unfit for office. But then beyond that, I think we've seen that he's just he's terribly undisciplined. He doesn't have the discipline to do the job. I mean, you're president of the United States, folks, who you're paying for to do this job 
is most of the time not actually doing his job. He's actually watching TV most of the time, uh, mean tweeting, and uh, you know, and having political conversations with aides. Uh, Mr. President, do your damn job. I mean, we hired you to do this. I want you going in, working actual full days on real issues, um, and not just diving into the political muckety muck um, every day. But that's that's what he's doing. Um, so that's what I mean by unfit for office. Now, look, you know, people have raised the 25th Amendment before, of course, which you know creates an opportunity for the cabinet to remove the president from office if he's unwell. I, I think speculation about that is really, really dangerous. But I'd be lying if I said that that thought didn't cross people's minds in year one, because at first, you know, folks would come back again, not having met Donald Trump before or just getting to know him for the first time, they'd come back wide eyed and say, you would not believe what it's like to be in a briefing with this man. You just wouldn't believe it. They're just like, I don't know, like something's wrong with him. Um, that, that wasn't like one or two people. That was like every flipping person that went in and briefed the president for the first time came out, their eyes as big as saucers, like, my gosh. Now that continued into the administration, but I think a lot of folks felt that loose talk about the 25th Amendment was exactly that, was very dangerous talk, and that the president was incredibly unconventional, but probably not removable on grounds of being like physically unable to lift a pen to sign you know, an executive order. Right. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, and that's what the 25th Amendment exists for, is, you know, a president, again, in a coma or that sort of thing. Um, but but certainly he's a man of extraordinarily poor character. And that's what I mean by fitness, is we want an upstanding person who's generally honest and tries to do the right thing to be in his job. Um, Donald Trump is generally dishonest and doesn't try to do the right thing. Uh, and that's the bar at which I think we have to measure him. Yeah, I find one thing that's interesting is that for many Republicans um, that I that I either have spoken with or I've heard publicly will say things like, "Look, the voters knew this. All of this is already kind of baked in," and yet we also hear falsehoods being peddled about Trump, where you know he's the hardest working president of all time, and you know this and that. You know, if if everyone already knew that he just sat and watched cable news all day, why would you need to peddle those falsehoods? Yeah, you know, I, I would say just because the president makes phone calls from dawn to dusk doesn't make him hardworking. Um, yeah, we would receive communications from the president at all hours of the day and night. Um, but it wasn't necessarily because he was hard at work and reading his briefing papers. I, I mean, look, I, I don't want to try to portray that I was the closest person to the president and saw him every day. I did not. Um, but I had regular enough exposure that I never really saw him read or consider a document thoroughly uh, and process information. I mean, he kind of jumps from one thing to the next and doesn't ingest uh, data thoughtfully. And so if you got an errant phone call at midnight from the president, it was usually about something that he saw on TV and he wanted to know why we weren't doing that thing. Um, I've given the example of Lou Dobbs before. He watches Lou Dobbs all the time and he would call the secretary of Homeland Security or his Homeland Security advisor, national security advisor, and say things like, uh, are you watching Lou Dobbs? You need to be watching what Lou's saying is, is what we have to do. Um, and it would be on an issue, you know, you'd maybe briefed him on three times. He said, no, I mean, Lou's wrong for da, 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 all these reasons. Say, no, no, no just, just do it like Lou said. Just do it like Lou said. Just go watch it. Go watch it on TV, and that's what we're going to do. You know, and then click, and that's the phone call. Um, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's what your reaction would be. You're like, what did, what did we just experience? Um People would leave. One of the most common 
reactions I saw out. Once people stopped having their eyes as big as saucers and being terrified and realized that there were some things that, you know, you could walk the president back from, um, people would walk out of the White House Situation Room or the Oval Office or the Roosevelt Room at the White House for meetings with him, and they would just start laughing. Like, they would just start laughing and then look at each other and be like, oh, my God, like, what just happened? And um, you almost had to do that to keep it from being such a negative, dispiriting environment, is you almost just had to laugh sometimes when really you probably should have been crying, but you'd turn to these people who were experiencing the same thing with you and you'd just be like, I can't even believe he just said the things he said in that room. And then you'd also talk about, okay, now what are we going to do about it? Uh, he just told us to go do a thing that was 180 degrees, the decision that he made yesterday. We're probably going to have to schedule another meeting with him and, and walk this back um, because he doesn't understand the consequences. Um, mm. and, but this was like, this wasn't a rarity. This happened every day. Wow. Well, uh, before we wrap this up, uh, uh, do you have any more questions from our listeners, uh, Patty? Well, before I ask you another question, I just want to say thank you so much, Miles. I know that you're probably getting this response from people all over the country that basically we're not crazy. We've been gaslit by this president. And there is something uh, very soothing that knowing that someone was in the room and is telling us what we believed to be true based on our what we were watching and seeing. So thank you so much for that. It's of important. Course, Patty, I appreciate it. And if I could just add one thing, I mean, I'd say to folks, I really, really urge, especially people who listen to your podcast that from day one have been opposed to Donald Trump, um, we've got to be able to come back together. This man has divided us so thoroughly that down to the family level, we're scared to go see, you know, Labor Day weekend and, uh, you know, and Thanksgiving. People are going to be worried about going to be with relatives who either love Trump or hate Trump. He's divided us right down to that family nucleus level, um, we're the only ones that can fix that. And so each of us has a responsibility to try to be more clear-eyed and empathetic when we talk about this. Donald Trump has done some good things as president. I know it's going to shock people here. He's actually done some very good things. Now, I don't think it's because he had a vision. Um, I think there was, there's been a lot of great people around him who've pushed great policies. If, if, you, if you like your tax breaks that you got under Donald Trump, I wouldn't really thank Donald Trump for that. I would thank Paul Ryan, who was Speaker of the House, and really pushed that forward. But good things have happened under his leadership. Um, and we've got to be able to acknowledge and be able to talk to people who are Trump supporters um, and, and engage and say, you know what? Yes, good things have happened under this president. And uh, good things could still happen in a second term. But what we're talking about here is not even Republican policies anymore, Democratic policies. We're literally talking about the integrity of the person who sits in the Oval Office and has access to the nuclear codes. That's what we've got to be voting on on November 3rd. And that's the discussion we need to have is um, what does this say, not just about the commander in chief, but what does it say about us? What does it say about us if this person with so little integrity uh, remains in the nation's highest position and, and the leader of the, th of the free world? And I think that's what we need to ask ourselves and have a real conversation with our families and friends. Oh, no doubt. And uh, and I may at some point ask you about somebody you may know in D.C. because I have to see him at the holidays and I want to make sure that we're able to talk to each other. <laughs> happy, um, happy to offer advice. I think that's what I really should have done as a coffee table book to help people get through the uh, the holidays. <laughs> talking <politics. laughs> Well, uh, on a serious note, because we are talking about, obviously, the election in November and, uh, and, and you know, you have uh, tweeted about. Um, the the threat that foreign governments are you know really presenting when it comes to interfering with our elections. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, when I was when I was at the Department of Homeland Security, every morning 
I started off, you know, get up at five thirty, get into the office, and I would read much of the same intelligence information that the president gets in what's called the PDB, the President's Daily Brief. Right? It's the book of the best and most serious intelligence uh, from you know CIA and NSA and and other agencies throughout the government um, to make sure that the president understands the dangers to the country and then is prepared to respond to them. So I'd get up and read a lot of that same information every morning. Uh, including the threats that we face from foreign governments trying to meddle in our democracy and specifically to undermine our elections. Uh, I'll tell you, it was hair-raising stuff. And a lot of it has been declassified. We've had members of the intelligence community come out and explain some of the threats that we face from these governments. A lot of it hasn't been declassified, but for good reasons, because you don't want to give up information that would compromise the sources that you have. And, And there are good things that happen uh, you know, in the in the shadows overseas that parts of our government do to protect Americans. Those things have to continue. They're very important. But what's alarming to me is Donald Trump acts like he hasn't read the same information that I've read. And I'll go a step further and say we would we would joke very cynically that when it came to Team USA versus Team Russia, it often felt like Donald Trump was playing for the other team because it was clear to those of us who worked in the national security community, that the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, and his agents in Moscow uh, are dedicated to and engaged in a multi-year campaign to undermine the United States of America, to sow division in our country, and to compromise the integrity of our electoral process. Um, That's very real. And, And we came away with that impression. That didn't stop in 2016. It continued. So I think it's actually inept uh, to use uh, the 9-11 analogy. People would say, you know, the interference in the 2016 elections was like a 9-11 scale attack. No, no, it's worse than that because 9-11 happened and it was a discrete, finite event and a terrible day in our history. Um, And then we went after the terrorists. But this uh, meddling from Moscow is continuing week after week. And it's, it's dragging on. And the president has responded to it with the equivalent of a whimper uh, and has done very little to hold Putin accountable. I mean, what we're talking about here is a foreign government trying to rip our country apart. That's like tantamount to warfare. And it is, in a way, a type of warfare. And the president has largely ignored it. And anything that this administration has done to be tough on Russia Don't listen to the president when he says, I've been tougher on Russia than anyone. He hasn't. Behind the scenes, he desperately wanted to avoid uh, doing things that would be punitive towards the Russians because he wanted a good relationship with Putin and he saw what the Russians were doing. uh, And and I can only presume he felt like it was very beneficial to him. So he didn't want to go after Putin. Um, Instead, the things that we did to punish the Russians were largely because of the cabinet secretaries and senior advisors around the president were like, we have to do this. We have to do some things. Otherwise, politically, you're going to be so vulnerable. You're going to get taken down. And he would begrudgingly accept some of the things that were recommended. But one of my biggest regrets of my time in the administration is that we did not punish the Russians hard enough. Because if we had, if we had punished them hard enough, they wouldn't be meddling in the 2020 election right now. And certainly other countries wouldn't have jumped into the game. But instead, because Donald Trump failed to decisively punish them, for intervening in 2016, 
Now you've got China in the game and Iran in the game and other countries deciding, wow, this is a pretty compelling thing to do. You can screw around in the United States with secret agents and cyber attacks and uh, and mess with their democracy. And it kind of works. It tears Americans apart and it gets them fighting each other rather than fighting us. Um, So he has opened the door wide open to our adversaries to come in and intervene uh, in our country. And I, I think that's very concerning. And look, in just the past week, you've seen very worrying instances of that with the president uh, himself only talking about uh, you know, the Chinese uh, intervention, which, as we know from the intelligence community, appears designed to uh, potentially help Joe Biden and hurt Donald Trump. Uh, and then he's remained silent about Russia because the Russians, as far as we know, are still continuing to try to uh, help Trump. Uh, you saw the Department of Homeland Security, a news story this week, that uh, DHS potentially has been sitting on an intelligence bulletin that, was, bulletin that was supposed to go out weeks ago that warned that the Russian government was engaged in a campaign to uh, spread misinformation about Joe Biden's mental health. Um, why did the department uh, uh, where I used to work, why did they sit on that information? That would have been very, very rare for me to say an intelligence bulletin could not go out. That is concerning to me. You had Bill Barr, the attorney general, this week say that he you know, he downplayed what the Russians were doing. Uh, and again, parroted the president's words um, and, and upplayed what the Chinese uh, are doing. We had the director of national intelligence in the past week or so say that no longer were they going to provide briefings on these subjects to members of Congress. Um, This is very concerning. It's one of the top national security threats our country faces right now. And the Trump administration is deliberately putting its head in the sand. Um, So, you know, look, uh, I wish the president, when he woke up, didn't turn on cable news and start mean tweeting. I really wish he picked up that, you know, PDB, that president's daily brief and took it more seriously, because if he did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, Miles, if you hadn't brought up what uh, Attorney General Barr said, I would I would have brought that up because I, that's a great example of the administration engaging in deliberate deception. I, I think uh, you know here you had Barr downplaying the Russian interference in our elections and uh, upplaying uh, the, this concern, you know, trying to create a danger regarding vote by mail uh, based on what he called logic. Um, and I, you know, it would, it leads me back to, and I, and I, and I, I think kind of where I'll leave it with you, my last question to you, which is, you talked about the importance of bringing us, us together as a country. And I agree that that's something that is important, something I want to accomplish. But as somebody who has many Trump voters in my family, one of the issues that I'm dealing with is that I no longer am engaging with them on the same set of facts. We are now living in parallel universes in which they believe that one plus one equals three or that the uh, sky is is not blue because they've been lied to so much and by people that they trust. And they have been trained and taught not to trust sources of information that both you and I would regard as credible. People like yourself, they would just completely disregard. How do we repair that going forward? Well, I, I think the honest conversation and the one I legitimately have with with my own family members is to acknowledge that some of what they believe is valid. And I think that's the core of empathy. And that's what we've got to get back to. So, you know, when you're really, really hardcore, what I call mega MAGA 
Trump voter says, I can't trust the mainstream media. And that's why I go to, let's pick something awful, like Sputnik News, which red alert to listeners, don't ever read Sputnik News. (laughs) It's actually Russian propaganda paid for by a foreign government to deceive you and screw with your head. Same thing with Russia Today, same thing with a number of these Chinese media outlets. Can't trust that stuff. But let's say, for instance, they say, that's the only reason I go to Sputnik News is the mainstream media. Well, there's some truth in that. Because what we talked about earlier was this, is people have gotten so deranged by Donald Trump that in some cases they have lost their objectivity. Some of our storied media outlets in this country have have really become 24-7 opinion pages rather than news networks. And um, that's a real concern. And it's happened on both sides of the spectrum, the left and the right. So that's that's a place to start engaging with someone is saying, yeah, you know, you are right. We've all gotten so thrown off kilter during this presidency that, um, you know, lies are coming from all sides. So we need to step back and reacquaint ourselves with objective truth. And that means, uh, you know, really trying to withhold judgment. I mean, in this age of, you know, you tweet, you move on. Um, people don't withhold judgment long enough to get the facts, um, but it's up to each of us to do that rather than giving in to the virtual mob and trying to decide, you know, how do things look? I mean, for example, we just talked about already this DHS intelligence bulletin this week that was supposed to go out and hasn't for some reason. Um, I can't definitively say that this was a political attempt by my successors at the department uh, to suppress information that might have made the president look bad or you know, they didn't want to mention Russia because of uh, his pressure. We don't know that. We don't know that. It's a it's a concerning data point we should dig into, but we don't know that. And we've got to be able to stop short of reaching dramatic conclusions every time, uh, whether we're talking about a Republican or a Democrat, um, and wait till we have the facts. And that was the case with impeachment. I mean, you know, millions of Americans had already impeached Donald Trump in their heads before the Mueller report came out. Um, that's the perfect example of how we've we've lost our own objectivity. Uh, we got to wait, and it may not be satisfying in uh, in this you know age of of instant media gratification. But it's the only way that we're going to get to the core of the truth is to let the facts filter in. Um, so you know that may not be a satisfying answer, but that's got to really start at the ground level. Government's never going to be able to fix that problem for us. Uh, Joe Biden, I think, will be a stable president. That's going to help us a lot. But Joe Biden is not going to be able to repair the United States of America. That's going to happen in our communities and our households. Wow. Well, very concrete suggestions, Miles. And I will just say, um, I've I I often learn from our guests, but I've learned in particular from you. And uh, I meant what I said that I admired your courage. I think that the true measure of someone is how they are when it, there's a difficult uh, situation, when there's a controversial, challenging time, not uh, during the easy times, and uh, when when it, when it really mattered, uh, you have come forward, and I really admire that. So I I. Thank you um, as an American, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and share your perspective. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Happy to anytime. Uh, and I would just say, uh, you know, to folks out there, um, you know, really, really do your best to bury the hatchet in the next month in the lead up <laughs> to the elections and, and uh, you know, hu- hug your fellow Americans. We all need it. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we get out of this thing uh, together. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast 
Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 